but I don't know, humility doesn't seem to quite capture it. It's more like selflessness or, um, or the idea that no matter what's going on, no matter what you're going through or what you're seeing, instead of saying, what's in it for me, instead asking, how is this good for Jesus? So I don't know, that's kind of like humility, right? But it's, it's not just humility like I'm humble, it's I'm humble and God is great at the same time. It is, I, I'm not really concerned about what I'm going through, but I'm looking at what Jesus is doing. We see it very early on in Philippians when Paul is talking about how he's in prison, but how it's been great for the gospel. And he doesn't, he doesn't seem worried that he's in prison, even though you and I would be worried if we were in prison awaiting a trial, right? But Paul goes, yeah, I'm in prison, but you know what? It's been great for the gospel, so I'm not really concerned about it. In fact, he says, I might die in prison, but it will bring glory to God, so I'm okay with it. And we see this, this over and over in the letter. With the naked eye, Paul's life looks like he's given up great things in order to take on all this suffering, and that you would, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who would, who would enter into a deal where you give up all the good things and take on a lot of hardship. But Paul says that Jesus, and knowing Jesus, is worth all of that and more, and more. So this kind of humility, this kind of Christ-centeredness where we're not concerned about what happens to us, but we are, we are entirely leaning on God being glorified, and we're not looking for our, our good, we're looking for, for His good, that's come up a lot in, in this letter in Philippians. Even when Paul talks about dying, he sees, he sees that as being gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And this morning we're going to look at one of the ways that this kind of selflessness, this kind of humility comes up in the life of, of a church, a local church, like the church in Philippi, who he's writing to in this letter. Uh, particularly when there's conflict within the church, what are we supposed to do about it? Imagine Christians disagreeing with each other. I know, I've heard of it. I think I read a, an article about it one time. Christians disagreeing. A friend of mine says that where there are five Baptists, there are six opinions. And I love that because it's, it's funny and true at the same time. But what happens when disagreeing about things and opinions turn into conflict? Well, Paul's going to address that here in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start with, uh, with verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. And let's just agree before we start to let God's word sharpen us, to listen to what God has to say, to let it lead us and make us more like Jesus. Amen? So this is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now let's just stop there. And I'm going to say Cynthia from now on because I'm actually not sure how to say that. I, I can, it's, uh, so just to geek out a little bit, it's Syntyche in Greek. But that doesn't say Suntuke, does it? So I'm just going to call her Cynthia. No offense to our actual Cynthia in the room. Um, so anyway, 
Paul, Paul is entreating these two women to agree in the Lord. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know what these two women were disagreeing about. We don't know the nature of their conflict. But we know that when Paul addresses issues that are doctrinal, he always takes a side and he says, this is the right way to think about it and this is the wrong way to think about it. But here, Paul doesn't take a side. We can glean from that that their disagreement is not doctrinal. Otherwise, it's not important. It's not essential. It is just some sort of conflict that, come, that has come up in their church. And we know that conflicts come up in the church. They come up all the time. And like whatever these two ladies are disagreeing about in the passage, our conflicts usually aren't about doctrinal things. Our conflicts are usually important to us, but probably not actually important. Does that make sense? So the, it's just interesting because Paul, uh, Paul addresses the issue of their conflict, but not the issue that they're disagreeing about. And sometimes we know conflicts in the church can be downright silly. There's a, a forum online, there's a website where pastors go and church leaders talk about, about leading churches. And from some of their stories, I've compiled a top 10 list. Are you ready? David Letterman style, top 10 silly conflicts that have happened in churches. These are real conflicts from pastors. Number 10, two different churches, two churches reported the same fight over the type of coffee that was being used. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a, to a stronger Starbucks blend. In the other church, they simply moved from a one Folgers blend to a different one. Members left the church in that second church. It gets better. Number nine, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday in church. Number eight, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. Who's wearing black? We're in trouble. All right. Number seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put up in the foyer. I'm sure he was honored by that. Number six, a church member came under fire for adding vanilla syrup to the coffee counter because some members thought the bottle looked too much like a liquor bottle. It was a glass syrup bottle, but people look, looking at it said it looks too much like liquor. We should, and that's actually a story come, that came from Beth Moore. Beth Moore brought the vanilla syrup, and she got criticized in her church for having caused people to stumble, I suppose. Number five, one church was so bothered by the resurgence of beards, they circulated a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. I don't have a choice, but. <laughs> Number four, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church potluck. 
You'd say only if they have angel food cake too. Yeah. Oh yeah, only black t-shirts. Yeah. Number three, an argument on whether or not women should be allowed to do the announcements, and this actually caused a church split. Not to preach, just to talk about the events that are coming up. Number two, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape instead of regular grape juice. And I know for us, if we for some reason went to the store and they didn't have regular grape juice and we were in a pinch and we, someone brought cran grape, I know leaving people would go, I didn't like that very much. I just know. But you know what? You can have an opinion, but this actually caused a dispute in the church. Cran grape. And then the number one, right, the number one, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. (laughs) All right. Look, the point is that none of us are above having those kinds of opinions, having strong opinions, and having strong opinions that can conflict with other people's strong opinions in the church. I've got my own story about a ridiculous outrage that I experienced, that I experienced in my previous church, and it had to do with the color that they were going to paint the building. I will spare you the details, but it was ridiculous. I was being silly. But conflicts come up, and they aren't rare, and it's been like that in churches for about 2,000 years. Part of that's good news. It means we're not crazy, right? This has come up for a long time, but how do we deal with it? Paul's solution for their conflict falls into three parts, makes it perfect for a sermon. The first part of conflict resolution comes right from verse 2. And you can write this down. Agree in the Lord. What happens when you're in conflict within the church? Differing opinions, disagreements. Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. That's what Paul says here in verse 2. Paul begged each of them, separately, individually, to agree in the Lord. As I mentioned, he doesn't take sides in this case. Instead, he wants them to find, find mutual agreement, not with each other, but in the Lord. So here's the thing. How do you solve every conflict? If I could just make you do something, how would I, what would I do to make every conflict go away? I would say, just agree with the other person. How do, you, how do you make every conflict go right? You just agree with the other person. You just give up. But that's cheating, right? Because that's not real. So Paul isn't saying agree with each other. He's saying agree in the Lord. It's less about agreeing with the other side. and It's more about agreeing to find Jesus' voice in the middle of the conflict and agree with Jesus. So um, to illustrate from my own life, sometimes... My wife and I disagree. Sometimes. Sometimes. So I told you a couple weeks ago that we had a mouse in the house. We, we caught it yesterday. And I realized that I love the thrill of the hunt, but the kill is not, not so hot, not what I'm into. But when it comes to the mouse, Missy and I had a disagreement. She, her preferred way to deal with the mouse is to scream and run. My preferred way is, honey, get my gun. <laughs> and I don't have a gun, so we just, had, we just have different ways of looking at it. Um, but really, in my family, when Missy and I disagree, um, what we, 
what we always find is that our hearts are in the same place. We're aligned in the same direction, even if we disagree about how to deal with it. And I think you find that's true in the church also, is most of our conflicts, our hearts are aligned in the same direction. We just disagree about the right way to get it done. It's a methodology issue. And so agreeing in the Lord keeps us focused on what's really important, and that's Jesus. It makes us look at what we agree about, and it makes us find our Lord and Savior in the matter, and it helps us achieve reconciliation. It's a big word, reconciliation. We use it a lot, but to reconcile, I have a definition from Oxford Dictionary. It means to restore friendly relations. It's about making peace between two parties, and it's a significant part of the gospel. In another letter that Paul wrote, this is 2 Corinthians 5.18. Paul wrote that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus and has now given us this ministry of reconciliation. So God has restored a friendly relationship between us and him through Jesus. And now that we are restored, he's conscripted us into the ministry of reconciling of restoring friendly relations between people and God, and just restoring friendly relations, period. Reconciliation is a big part of what we do as Christians. We are called to promote making peace, to be peacemakers. And if we can't do that in the church, if we can't promote peace within the family, how do we stand a chance of promoting peace with a sinful, lost world and a holy, benevolent God? If we can't resolve conflicts peacefully here, we can't in the world. So we have to start here. It starts here. The Bible has a lot to say about reconciliation and making peace. I'm going to give you three things that come up in Scripture that you need to consider when you find yourself in a conflict. We start by remembering every conflict is an opportunity to A, Give, to give. Every conflict is an opportunity to give. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The key here is that we are called to be like God, called to be particularly like Jesus who gave himself up for us while we were still enemies with him. While we were still in conflict with him, he gave up himself for us. And when we are in conflict, we need to look for ways to give because Jesus gave himself for us. If you're competitive, that can be hard because conflict looks like an opportunity to win something. But faithfulness isn't about what you get out of it. It's not about winning. It's always about what you put into it, what you invest. So look for ways to give. And the next one is look for ways to grow. Every conflict is also an opportunity to grow. Because every conflict is a chance to become more like Jesus. While writing about conflict in the Corinthian church, Paul concluded his thought about that conflict by saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
The question you should ask yourself when you're faced with a conflict, in any conflict, any disagreement, any, any difference of opinion, the question you need to ask is, what matters more, that I get my way or that I honor Christ? And then do the thing that honors Jesus, whatever that is. And when you do that, you'll grow. It's like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he can increase. We have to take conflicts as an opportunity to decrease my, my, my desire for myself and what I want and to promote and increase God's presence in my life. You're not always going to get your way, but it's not about you, amen? But it is not about you. It's not about us. It's always about Jesus. And you know what? Honestly, it's not a good, good thing for you to always get your way all the time. If you get what you want every time, you're running the show, right? And God hasn't appointed you to run the show. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. So it's healthy to not get your way all the time. Also, the last one, every conflict is an opportunity to give, grow, and serve. In Luke chapter 6, this is what Jesus said. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. What did Jesus say to do in conflict? Fight back? We live in a world that tells you to hate your enemies, but Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good for them, bless them, pray for them. And he wasn't being sarcastic, he was being serious. Take every conflict as a chance to serve and love on the people who disagree with you. How can I serve people in this conflict? Jesus did that for us. When we were his enemies, he came to serve us and he gave himself for us and he loved us. He came and he made peace with us and now we are called to make peace. We are called to be peacemakers. So in verse two, Paul addresses a conflict and he begs them to agree in the Lord between themselves. But in verse 3, Paul takes it a step further because sometimes we just can't agree. Sometimes you just can't agree. The, the gap is too wide or, or, or whatever. We just can't agree. So in verse 3, Paul appealed to an unnamed true companion to help these women. So he, he entreats them to agree in the Lord, and then he says to someone else, a third party, I ask you, unnamed true companion, to help these women. From this, we see that biblically, if peace can't be made privately, you should appoint a mediator, a neutral third party, because sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need somebody to make a judgment call for us and to speak truth into our situation. Sometimes, for whatever reason, we can't find Jesus in the middle of our conflict. We don't see his presence there. We can't 
agree in the Lord. We think we're trying to give and we're trying to grow and I'm trying to serve in the middle of this, but we just can't resolve it. So go get help. Go get help. In this church, for example, um, you've got me, you've got ministry leaders, you've got people in leadership at the church, you've got committees. There are plenty of people that you can go to if there is some kind of a conflict for a neutral, loving, respected judgment about what to do. And so it should be easy to find someone, at least here. It should be easy to find someone. So appoint a mediator. And number three, finally, Paul makes a point. Paul makes a point that we should have seen coming because we've been talking about it. Resolving conflicts in the church often requires that we Actually, it doesn't often. It always requires that we find and embrace our common ground. Embrace our common ground. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe the same thing. We follow the same Lord. We worship the same God. Paul described these two feuding women as Christians using the strongest language that I, I, that I can think of Paul using in Scripture. These are women who have labored for the gospel and whose names, Paul says, are written in the book of life. He says, these women for sure are going to be in heaven with me someday. I'm positive about it. These are women who love Jesus, but for some reason can't agree about something that's not doctrinal, something that just is coming up in the life of the church. We need to embrace our our common ground, understanding that Jesus loves us and calls us into love each other and when you see the other people in a conflict through that lens when you think about them like jesus thinks about them you want to give people the benefit of the doubt right when you're in conflict you need to give someone else the benefit of the doubt in the church if uh if bruce and i disagree about something and we're just, I can't, you know, we're just, we're just keep disagreeing about it. I need to understand that he's got the Holy Spirit in his heart, that his life has been changed by Jesus, that he loves Jesus just like I do, and I give him the benefit of the doubt. I'd be, be charitable. Instead of looking at it just my, my way, I need to look at it from his eyes too and find that common ground because our common ground starts with Jesus. It starts with the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and then this ministry of reconciliation that he's called us to, that Jesus wants us to resolve those things. And so if you can't simply agree in the Lord, you can't find Jesus in it, appoint a moderator, a mediator between you two, and in every case, embrace the common ground that's between us. Understand that our hearts are aligned toward the same thing. We have the same desire down here. We just disagree about how to get it done. But we aren't enemies. We're family. But sometimes the worst fights happen in families, right? Sometimes it it happens. But nevertheless, we have a responsibility in Jesus to overcome those fights and to make peace no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Because if anyone had a reason to not make peace with his enemies, it was Jesus with us. 
And so we follow in his footsteps. We follow our Lord and we make peace because we're in this together and at the center is the Prince of Peace. I'm going to close by mentioning that conflicts are still going to come up. We can't avoid them. In fact, I think avoiding them is unhealthy. When a conflict comes up, running away from it, denying it, fleeing from it is unhealthy just in the same way that getting furious and outraged is unhealthy. Aggression, they say that there's, they say in the world there are three ways to handle uh, a conflict. There is uh, being passive, there is being aggressive, and there's being passive-aggressive. They're all bad. They're all bad. Running away and pretending like it didn't happen and just sweeping it under the rug is unhealthy for you. Trying to attack somebody over it is also unhealthy for you and them, probably. Being passive-aggressive is just annoying. And it doesn't get anything done. It really doesn't. It is not going to resolve anything. Biblically, we are called not just to be passive, not to run away from it, not to be aggressive, not to be passive-aggressive, but to be peacemakers, to resolve it by doing what Paul said, by agreeing in the Lord. If, if you can't, you need to find a, a mediator and by embracing this idea that our hearts are aligned toward the same thing, even if we disagree about the method about how to do it. The interesting thing about conflict is that if we're making it all about Jesus, if we make everything about Jesus, everything that comes up, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, like Paul's doing here in Philippians. It's not about me and what I'm going through, it's about Jesus. If every conflict we make about Jesus alone, then every conflict and disagreement in the church will lead us closer to Christ. If we resolve it, we will be a better church. If we handle conflicts correctly, Jesus will grow in the church and we will be more like him. So if you, if, if you experience a conflict, you might want to say, oh my gosh, no, that's a, that's, that's a bad thing. But it is an opportunity to grow in Christ. It really is. And it is an opportunity for a church to grow closer to Christ and to be like him. And if we can resolve conflict here, if we can reconcile here, we learn, we learn important things about reconciling in the world, about sharing the gospel and telling people about God's grace and his forgiveness. When people ask, why would God forgive me? We can tell them because we've experienced it, not just with God, but with each other. And we can speak to reconciliation because we live it out and we practice it. Conflict seems bad, but Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus is a redeemer. He takes bad things and he turns them into good things. He's working all things for his glory. He's working all things for our good. So the things that threaten to break us apart can heal us if we let them in the name of Jesus. Let's pray.